Hey there, we are the MI guys, and we are here to enhance your evidence-based communication skills for the individuals and communities and organizations uh, that you serve if you are watching this. So welcome to the conversation. Uh, My name is John Gilbert with IFISC, and this is Casey Jackson. Hello. And uh, we're going to be talking a bit today about what is motivational interviewing. And you may have heard a lot about that. It's become quite a bit... Uh, are quite a bit more popular uh, out there in the last decade or so with a lot of research. And so you may be Googling it, you may just be looking for it, but there's a lot on it. Uh, we're just going to touch on some of the basics today. So uh, if you wouldn't mind us, Casey, what would you say is motivational interviewing? It sounds like you're interviewing someone for a job. It's, are you a motivational speaker? What are you doing? Uh, no, no, no. Um, all the things that we think motivational interviewing is tends to not be exactly what it is. It, I, I think in hindsight, it's probably not the terminology that Dr. William Miller, who developed motivational interviewing, would have used if he thought people would have been paying this much attention to it. Um, mostly what it's about, it's about how do you have an effective communication uh, for affecting behavior change? How do you have a precision behind that, a mindfulness and a thoughtfulness about how do you affect ambivalence and shift towards sustained behavior change? Um, so it's less about us trying to motivate people. It's not about interviewing people. One of the interesting stories that I'd heard about uh, where Dr. Miller came up with the term even was what he realized with a lot of people with a lot of resistance or pushback, what we tended to do, especially in the addiction field, was confront people. And what he realized, which was pretty straightforward, but we never figured out when I was going through the addiction world, in the 80s and as a professional and in the 90s was that people just don't like to be confronted. We used to say that alcoholics or addicts don't like to be confronted or held accountable, but fundamentally nobody likes to be confronted and if you confront them, they get defensive. So what he realized is if you just have a conversation or you interview someone, no one's defensive if you interview them and don't have any judgment towards them. And If you don't have judgment and you ask questions and try to step inside their reality, people are more than willing to talk about what their reality is. And so that's where the term, the interviewing side of it came. And what he realized more from stepping inside their reality and kind of looking at the world through their worldview, he was scratching his head thinking, you know, what is their deeper motivation? What motivates them? Why would they want to change their behavior? Why would they want to stop drinking or using drugs or uh, doing some of the self-destructive behaviors? And so that's where the term came from. He would interview people to find out what motivated them. Mm -hmm. So it's not what people think. Well, I don't do interviews. Well, how do we motivate them to change? How do I Mm -hmm. get that in there? It's that's not what it's about. It really is. How do you work with individuals? Since most of us have ambivalence about behavior change, especially critical large behavior changes, how do you work with that ambivalence and help people shift towards a, a, beha- a long-term behavior change without the guilt, without the pressure, without the kind of coercion or confrontation that we tend to do professionally? So mm-hmm. that's kind of the, the base for thinking about what is motivational interviewing. Yeah, kind of a key in there that uh, seems to be really important, especially if you're interested in other kind of personal applications of how we've uh, adapted MI is, is what you were talking about. If it's a conversation about change and it's a behavior change conversation of some kind, even if it's a mental change, and that's different than just more general mindful communication. Right. And so that's a very specific thing. And then, like you were pointing out, Bill Miller would just be curious of why people do what they do, right. and then 
why, if any reasons or anything, they'd like to be different in their life. And it's this very non-judgmental. He would build off of what Carl Rogers would get into with unconditional positive regard. Um, and he's very humble and talks about being on the shoulder of, of giants. And he would just sit in this accepting space and be curious and really see if they have motives for change rather than try to get them to. Exactly. And that seems to be kind of the themes that are really important to not be using techniques of MI to get people to change so much as be with people in a different way. And you always talk about this in trainings as a method of communicating. So would right. you explain kind of why that's something you emphasize rather than it's a technique or I used a motivational interviewing on someone, you yes. know, like that sort of thing. <laughs> um, I think of it as a method because there is a structure behind it. I think in a lot of communication styles we get trained on, like there's communication styles where we use I statements. Mm -hmm. Make sure you use I statements in certain in certain styles of communication or let's make sure we're active listening. And I think those are micro skills or techniques we can think about. But when I think of a method, a method is a structure to it. And, and, and we've talked about, um, or you may have listened to conversations that we've had about fidelity. How much do you stick to the model? And when I think of a method, there's a method. There's a method to the madness. Um, but there is a process that is specific. And with motivational interviewing, and when we get into fidelity measurements, or we've talked about the MICA or other coding tools, there's this balance in motivational interviewing between the actual micro skills and the techniques, which you do have to master those micro skills and techniques, but then there's an artistry or mastery behind it as well too. And so when I think of a method, a method is something that you stick to. When you think of an acting method or when you think of a, a sports method or a dance method or you know any of these methods, there's a specific kind of orchestrated effort to what you're attempting to do. And motivational learning from a measurable perspective and a fidelity perspective definitely has a method of communication. And the reason why I've pushed it more as a, a method of communication is because I, I think that there's so much utility for it beyond the way that we tend to traditionally think. And so when I think of a method of communication, as long as you're trying to reduce resistance, help someone deal with ambivalence, and move towards a more positive outcome, that doesn't have to be a technique. Mm -hmm. It's more of a, a process of communication um, instead of having that feel like you did this or you did this kind of this twist to it that you specifically do from a technique mm -hmm. perspective. And there, there's techniques to it, but it really is, there is a methodology behind it um, that's researched and, and well studied. So yeah. that's why I like talking about it in terms of a method of communication. Yeah, one thing that's really, really critical here, and I can talk about it in relation to uh, kind of the history of MI leading up to what we now talk about with intentions. But really what you're getting at is that you're not trying to use techniques to get people no. to do what you want them to do. No. And there's a whole podcast that we go deep into this subject around equipoise right. of who's defining what's pro-social or not or healthy or not. And it's a very fascinating podcast that you can uh, check out at uh, a different uh, membership uh, level. But if you look into that, uh, we really get into this this point around what are your intentions and, and who's defining what's right and wrong because what you're getting at is this intentionality of being with people in an open accepting way 
being curious, stepping in their reality and their shoes and looking at the world as they see it, while also still being in your own reality, not leaving your experience right. and your awareness and helping guide them towards their version of happier and healthier. And that's no one technique. There's certain techniques, but that's a way of being. It's a way of seeing someone. Yes. It's a way of treating them. And then you throw some techniques in there to help you feel more confident like you can do that. And traditionally, with some of the other fidelity tools that we've, we've talked about before, um, like the motivational interviewing treatment integrity uh, mm-hmm. manual, they would talk about technical skills versus relational skills. Right. And so we aren't talking about relational skills as much just because of uh, the connotation. And we talk about that in other uh, podcasts as well. Yes. That's slightly controversial <laughs> that MI is not relationship based. Right. Um, but it really is this way of being with someone and treating them and seeing them. And that goes so beyond the techniques. So there's, there's a place though for um, techniques at a certain point. So how do you bring that mentality in a training or in a skill building or something where you are really trying to have them bring the mentality, but then help them with the techniques. How do you not have them be so focused on the techniques that they right. lose the intentionality? Right. Well, I, I, I think partly what I'll back up and look at is why would we use motivational interviewing? Yeah, yeah, and then we can part. separate out the techniques part of it mm-hmm. from this thing we're talking about, the methods. And Predominantly what I think of and, and a lot of the ways that motivational things is written about is one of the primary goals of motivational thing is to reduce or eliminate any tension or resistance or discord. And, and we talk a lot about the physics of communication and the, the method that you can employ to manage the physics of communication. And the first thing I think of is you, as long as people are focusing in this direction, as long as they want to focus on you um, and not focus on themselves, it's just easier to not have to deal with my own issues as long as I can blame everybody else or make it about everybody else. So whatever you call that energy of somebody blaming outside of themselves, that you know, it's talked about as discord, it's talked about just an interpersonal tension uh, or dynamic, um, or we talk about in terms of resistance as well too, it's just that tension between two things. Motivation is incredibly, um, there's a technique specifically to reduce that, that resistance. That's not the method of motivational interviewing, but that's mm-hmm. one technique for being able to reduce the resistance or eliminate the, the resistance. So when you think of what is the intention of motivational interviewing, what's the point of MI, what is motivational interviewing, if I can eliminate this energy here, the desire to blame outside of myself, or for an individual to blame outside of themselves, with motivational interviewing, you can get them internal really quickly. And we talk about in training, like within three to five minutes, you should be able to eliminate this discord or, or resistance or this focus outside the self. You have the capacity to, not in every situation, yeah. but strategically we can get it down relatively quickly. And I think this strategy is part of the technique. Then from there, what you have access to is that someone feels two ways about their situation. It's everything that we hear about motivational interviewing is how do we navigate ambivalence and resolve ambivalence. So if you eliminate this resistance, it's just easier for me as an individual to blame outside myself and make it about other people if I don't know how to deal with the behavior. If I don't know what behavior change that I need to make, if I'm struggling with, should I lose weight? I know I need to, I need to get to the gym. I probably need it healthier. Like all of these things that we wrestle with, if someone jumps on us or confronts us or even asks about it, we tend to want to blame outside of ourselves or we want to make excuses. And what motivational learning does is how do you eliminate this energy of blaming outside the self? And then 
have people be able to walk through their own experience, their own ambivalence, their own struggle, the way that they're dealing with it or contemplating it, how do you navigate that in a way that they start to get their behavior lined up with their values? And so that's what I think of. Predominantly, why am I or what is motivation? You're going to eliminate resistance or tension or discord. When you eliminate this energy here, you're going to get access to this energy here. And then how we resolve this energy here for any of us cross-culturally is, well, what are your core values? Who are you? Who do you want to meet when you Mm -hmm. grow up? And when you get to identify that and you get really crystal clear about who you want to be, who you really are inside, it'll have some impact on your ambivalence. It may increase your ambivalence. It may help you resolve your ambivalence. And that's what we think of for motivational interviewing. So when we talk about what is motivational interviewing, it is a method of communication of eliminating this. How do we navigate this and help resolve this ambivalence or this this discord or this internal um, things that we contemplate? And then move towards a behavior change so we feel like our behavior is in alignment with who we say we are, who we want to be. Um, and that, in a, in a nutshell, is what motivational learning is. Hmm. So then when you look from that perspective, you can see there's very specific techniques, but motivational interviewing is a method of communication then mm-hmm. for how we orchestrate all of that. Mm-hmm. So. Which is beyond the uh, importance confidence scale. It's beyond the IQ ledge and all these acronyms that stand for uh, exploring extremes. And they're wonderful things to have in your back pocket ready to go. But with that intentionality of really seeing and treating someone from that place yes. that you're talking about, yes. which usually takes the most amount of training with equipoise and these things. and. One thing that came up for me as you were talking about that was something that uh, we got to experience at one of the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers, the Mint conferences, where uh, it was very promising when it happened because Stephen Rolnick was up uh, on stage talking about this concept of harmology and being values-based. And at the time, we were working with Dr. Susan Butterworth and Allie Hall around the MICA, or maybe we had come out, I'm not sure, around that time. We were working, I know we were working on it. And we were very, like, having this sense of we're on to something because that's what's baked into the MICA is, is looking at values and what Dr. Susan Butterworth would talk about with not doing harm. And so when it came to mind with what you're talking about of eliminating this energy of resistance, it's really seemingly important if, if you're looking at this for what is MI. MI is a way to not in, it's a way to avoid doing harm to someone potentially by Definitely. really focusing on how are you influencing them. And the more you have them give you a yeah, but and make the case against change, the more likely they're not going to change. Right. And if that's an unhealthy behavior or an antisocial behavior, then, then you're actually causing that person to make the case against changing and there it's linguistically the research shows they're less likely to change so you can actually be making people more stuck which right. I thought was really important from what you're talking about of eliminating this energy it actually improves clinical outcomes if you just eliminate this energy alone well and and partly you know we put some terminology or tease this out a little further we talk about writing reflex we talk about equipoise but you take the example that you just talked about in in traditional behavioral health or traditional healthcare services. We are experts that are paid, like I'm a, I have expertise in working with children, I have expertise in addiction, expertise in mental health, and I get paid to be an expert. That's what my, my professional perspective is. So somebody comes in with addiction issues or they bring their children in with addiction issues and I have an expertise on how to navigate that. And as soon as I tell someone what they need to do, 
it is going to generate, yeah, but you don't understand. You don't understand me. You don't know my situation. So then we'll sit and listen to their situation. The more I listen to their situation, the more opinions I have about, you really need to get this under control. Mm -hmm. So that's a traditional kind of approach is I'm an expert. I have expertise. I understand the situation. So yes, I can listen to the situation more, but the more I listen to the situation, the more I need to know you need to change these behaviors if you want to have a healthier lifestyle. So that's my natural writing reflex in it. But that process in and of itself generates exactly what you're talking about. As soon as I say, this is what you need to do, then the first thing the person starts thinking about is, but this is why I don't do it or this is why I can't do it, is if I'm, as the professional, giving them insight into something that they didn't already know. Mm -hmm. Drugs and alcohol are bad for you. Like Mm -hmm. that's not, Mm -hmm. the sky didn't open up and Mm -hmm. all of a sudden they're like, oh my gosh, I never knew that before. Mm -hmm. Uh, Managing your blood sugar is gonna be helpful for your diabetes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh, I'd never even heard that concept before. Mm -hmm. I mean. some ways our mm-hmm. professional perspective we bring to it doesn't um, have a respect, basic respect that people know a lot of the things that we already know. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. we start thinking about, well, then what are we getting paid for? Well, we're giving paid to give them advice. That, that must be what we're getting paid for is to give advice, which is why motivational learning is so different because we're not there to give advice. We truly are there to help a person move towards a sustained behavior change. So there's a part of it where we have a collaboration because there may be expertise or insights that I have that the individual doesn't have. But what we're mostly doing is how do we engage their brain in the change process mm-hmm. and, and trusting or respecting that they have quite a bit of information mm-hmm. already. But what they can't resolve is the ambivalence about, I don't know if I want to go to the gym five days a week and get at least 20 minutes of cardio in. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that I, you know, uh, when I get home from work, I need that stress relief of just having a couple beers or a, a bottle of wine helps my stress level go down and then I feel like I can sleep and cope with the world or mm-hmm. it's a reason why I take a little extra of my Xanax you know mm-hmm. so I can get through a day there, there's all sorts of reasons why we do it and and it's not as if people do not understand um, the negative effects it's just we, we can rationalize so many things in our brain and this is where motivational interviewing steps into those realities and uses a method to help people navigate through that to make more effective behavior change and something that, um, Casey, you're tapping into that's really important to keep in mind is that someone, if you're going to have a conversation about change with someone and you're going to have that intentionality but and treat them in this way, it's really seen if they have ambivalence, if they have mixed feelings, if they feel two ways about something. And at a certain point, they may not present as if they do. There's right. a lot of blame or they're passive and not talking. But really... Defensive. The, yeah. Defensive. Passive aggressive or aggressive, all these sorts of possibilities. And it's really our job, it's our ethical job to see if there's ambivalence in there about a happier and healthier for them. And sometimes that happier and healthier is there, but they just have a lot of information that isn't always accurate too. So that can trigger people as well that we know the accurate information, but just because we're right doesn't mean it's helpful. Right. And there's uh, a lot of this in various aspects of healthcare, even in the lifestyles medicine community where we feel very right. We're aligned with the research and we could help you if you just would see it, you know, what the evidence shows. Yes. But it really is this nice expertise, this really trying to be kind confrontation. Whereas what you're talking about is really stepping in their shoes and saying and expressing how they see the world that they don't see that big of a deal not looking at their blood sugars. They don't think it's 
an issue with the drugs as much. But then once you do that, all of a sudden it opens up the possibility of them to consider other change because they're not being defensive with you, right. which I think is a critical step in what we're talking about here. Right. And, and as you, to unpack that a little further too, part of the stepping in their shoes means that we need to listen differently. Mm-hmm. We, we tend to listen as experts. We tend to listen to solve. Mm-hmm. We tend to listen so we can fix it. We tend to listen so we can give advice. And what you're talking about when you're saying stepping inside their shoes, we tend to step inside somebody's shoes from our worldview. Mm-hmm. And with motivational interviewing, you're stepping inside their shoes because you're actively listening to how is their brain thinking? What is their brain seeing? What, how is their experience being felt? That's a different way of stepping inside their shoes in terms of what is it like for me to step inside their shoes. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a level of active listening that you're referring to mm-hmm. is how do we step inside their reality and really understand when we look at it from their vantage point, the stuckness makes sense. To, to see what they're struggling with, it makes sense if we look at it through their worldview, step in their shoes and actively listen to what the, the struggle is. And this is where the expertise in MI comes in. And what, like when you referenced uh, Stephen Rolnick at the at the Berlin conference, um, when he was listing all these things around values and, and talk about are we missing the mark about focusing so much on target behaviors mm-hmm. that we're missing the mark about how we affect behavior change? Because it's not just a series of target behaviors. We're looking at how do we impact change for the sustain for the mm-hmm. long run. Mm-hmm. And I think so when you step inside somebody's reality, you can see what they're struggling with about that target behavior, but the mastery of motivational interviewing is being able to listen far enough inside their experience to step so far inside their shoes that you're able to extract what are their core operating values, what is their MO, and is their behavior lining up with who they truly are beneath all the behaviors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that, I think, is where you get into the mastery of what motivational learning is about. Mm-hmm, and again, mm-hmm. that's not just a technique. There's all sorts of techniques to try to access that, but that doesn't necessarily make it motivational interviewing. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the whole method that you're using to get there. Yeah, and this, this really taps into kind of where we've come to, and, and I want to expand on that, but also just really expanding on that is important that this sets up a conversation for possible change to happen. Right. If that person is interested in some version of happier and healthier, and then focusing on listening from a deeper place of values, not just the targets of what could change this or that. Yes. And there's a variety of people that talk about this in the MI world. It's just, we get so caught sometimes on the whole target behavior. Yes. Yet this was really developed as a pre-treatment before the therapy of whatever it was, cognitive, behavioral, dialectical, whatever the the therapy is or or was going to be, this was to engage the person in their own potential change process. So this is where I know what I'll speak to in a a training is that education is different than motivation. It's not that education can't help with motivation, but they're different interventions with different outcomes. And so really motivation helps be the vehicle for education to happen. Meaning if I'm motivated and I want this happier and healthier from a values place to be more of that kind of a person, now I'm open to consider possibilities, even if those possibilities weren't on my radar before. And so that's really managing our writing reflexes, staying in equipoise, stepping in their shoes. Then that's that collaboration you're talking about coming in at the right time with information that's going to help them get them where they want to go. And that is what I want to dive into for this next part. What does it mean to be values-based versus target behavior-based? Because there's an important 
to make MIMI, there has to be some kind of a change, of, be it a mental or a behavioral change that eventually gets focused on. Yet we're kind of taking what Stephen Rolnick talked about and really that's in the MICA as well is that proficient level is being focused beyond the target. Molly Kellogg talks about this as well. It's not about just managing blood sugars as she'll say uh, in her newsletter. It's about being with the grandkids and playing with them and doing these sorts of things. So how would you kind of like let people know that either are kind of interested in MI or to not get so caught on the target behavior, but still make it a conversation about change that's values-based. The thing that I was thinking about as you're talking about it is I think for most professionals, healthcare and behavioral healthcare professionals, I think if you ask them, do you genuinely believe in informed choice? Hmm. Do you genuinely believe in informed choice? Do you genuinely believe that the patients or clients that you work with have the right to make decisions about their own life? Do you genuinely believe that? Or do you get annoyed when they make choices um, or get frustrated with the choices that they make? If you genuinely believe in informed choice, then I can start bouncing off the things that you're talking about. Because when I provide my expertise at the right moment in time that helps augment their knowledge base, not that I'm trying to tip them towards one choice or towards another choice, but when I'm in an MI perspective, but when they have a full working knowledge of what the, the issue is about, what the potential consequences could be, what the potential benefits could be in that process, and they know exactly what the interventions can provide for them and what the mm-hmm. prognosis would be, do we believe they have a choice to choose mm-hmm. an intervention or not to have an intervention? Mm-hmm. Do we believe that? Mm-hmm. And I think this is what you get into when you start talking about target behavior. My, I, I believe that we have to have for an MI conversation to happen, it's more helpful to have a target behavior. It is so much easier to have an MI-based conversation if you came to me and said, hey, Casey, I want to quit smoking. So let's talk about my smoking and me quitting smoking. Mm-hmm. MI is significantly easier to have mm-hmm. than if you come to me and you're a single dad with four children, your wife is deceased, you're unemployed, um, you're starting to drink more, you're not taking your medications as described, um, you're struggling with, as prescribed, you're, you're struggling with your um, children and your parenting, you're having problems with your family of origin, your mom is intervening. And then I say, no, just pick one. <laughs> we can just talk about one thing because yeah, I, but... I need to record this conversation. So <laughs> just pick one target behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it just in so many settings, it's not realistic to pick one target behavior. It's wonderful if we could, but so many areas of behavioral health care, even health care with comorbidity and all these things going on, it's just it's a luxury to pick one target behavior. Mm-hmm. And so what I think of from that perspective, and this goes back to empowerment and informed choice, is, again, we have expertise. This is why what we resonate with um, looking from a values-based perspective is what I can talk to from an MI perspective with you about if you have these complex issues going on is really listening for who are you, who do you really want to be, who do you see yourself as, what level of integrity do you want to operate from? How important is it for you to be the role model you want to be for your children? How important is it for you to be a provider in the way you want to provide for your children? And when you get clear about those things, what are some things you think would be most helpful to deal with from here? So once we go to the values, we can drop down into a target Mm -hmm. behavior. Mm -hmm. And this is, again, this is a method of communication. Mm -hmm. It's not just a technique to do the decisional balance scale for you so you can go through pros and cons. Mm -hmm. If you change or if you don't change, um, those kind of perspectives. So that's a good technique 
but it's not going to necessarily, it's not necessarily motivational. It's actually not motivational interviewing just doing the decisional balance scale. Mm -hmm. It can leave people just as stuck before you talk to them. Mm -hmm. So it is how do you take this whole process together and pull it together from that perspective. And, and when we were talking earlier, that's why I kept triggering my thinking in terms of this for me does come down to informed choice. It's the expertise that I bring to the table with mm -hmm. the willingness and the desires that you bring to the table of what quality of life do you want to mm -hmm. have and which of your behaviors are interfering with that mm -hmm. or you're tripping over mm -hmm. or consistently don't know how to navigate. Mm -hmm. And then we can co-create that. And once that's co-created through a collaborative process, then it really comes down to what do you think your best options are from here? If you're going to be the person you want to be, what would that look like from mm -hmm. here? That's that's what a, the core construct of an MI process is about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really, it's so critical for meaningfulness is what you're really talking about. How meaningful is this change? And then how confident, you know, some people say importance and confidence. And there's yeah. good research on this that that if the importance is to some degree and the confidence is to some degree, it's more likely to happen. And what you're really talking about is how, how do we tap into who do they want to be and how much that means to them. And there's a way to do that from a values-based place of listening, which is harder. If I'm the person trying to help you, I have to listen deeper. I have to listen past the explicit words you're telling me to what is, what's really deeper than that? What are the core yes. values? Oh, this person really wants to be a role model. They want peace uh, in their family and really to get along and get that sense of connection. And these are things that we don't, I, my experience has not been to typically listen in that way in right. our culture. And so it really challenges the person. And then sometimes you may not use those exact words. You right. might say you just want to uh, hang with who you want to hang with more. You know, um, how, when we've worked with Department of Corrections, it has to be used in different language. But you're conscious as a listener to listen deeper is what you're really getting at to what is important, what's meaningful. And then once you have that in place, as you talked about dropping down, we have a whole uh, concept, Casey uh, developed it years ago with the Focus Mountain that we have in some other material if you're, you're interested that a lot of people have found very helpful yeah. around how to listen to values versus just getting caught in all the targets and running around the bottom of the mountain. Yes. And when you're in that process, it's easy to get so caught in, in the target. So you're really talking about listen here and listen deeper and then help the motivation to some degree to want to align their behaviors with that person, that, that future happier and healthier. And then as you come back down, that's where the target behavior comes in is to help them be that's who exactly they want to be. That's exactly it. And that means there's a place for a target behavior. But if you're going to focus on a target behavior at the expense of deep engagement and deep sense of this is who I want to be, then it's from everything I've learned in behavior change, it's less likely that you're going to have a deep, meaningful uh, conversation around it that's going to result in a long-term change because that's what we haven't addressed in this conversation is there di there's a difference between a short-term change conversation, right. which is just compliance and rules and policies, right. or do you, you want to try to help someone with a long-term change? And to do that, I got to have a deep way of, of listening to you so that when you're thinking, hmm... Do I go to the fridge right now and just hang out after work or do I put my shoes on and go for a walk around the block? Right. That I've had a conversation with you that helps you make the decision with informed choice of who you want to be and that I'm not going to judge it. And more personally, I can speak to just because I know beer is not healthy, I choose to, <laughs> I choose to drink beer and it's not a health promoting food um, and I tend to be a pretty health conscious person. But I have the... I'm lucky to have the free 
choice to do that in the society right. and that um, I get to do that knowing that it may not be the healthiest decision but if we had an MI conversation with my commitment to my well-being and integrity it's less likely I would go overboard with my, my beer drinking just because you've you have helped me remind myself to be who I want to be, which is a values-based conversation, not just about beer yes. or this food or that food. Yes. It's so different. So from that place, there's also kind of this framework we haven't talked about that we've alluded to. If you could talk a little bit about, we've, we've kind of modeled it. We only have a few minutes left, but right. if we could kind of cap with a framework to start thinking about this, the uh, four processes came out uh, relatively recently with, uh, by Dr. Miller and Stephen Rolnick um, around engage, focus, well, it's, it's a slightly different. We, we have a whole thing we could get into this. <laughs> That's what we were going to do with that. <laughs> we, we talk about it as engage, focus, plan, and pursue. And they, they have a, a vote in there. And we could help, uh, do a whole other podcast, which I'm sure we will on this topic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that's just to say for how we're talking about it from the place, would you just kind of break it down for kind of a cap of how to bring this all together in a framework sure. of engage, focus, plan, and pursue? I will. I, the one thing I want to touch on yeah. from what you're talking about, and then I'll go into the four processes. When you're talking about the, like the beer thing, or, or I was thinking about from the professional behavior health or healthcare professional, mm -hmm. What makes motivation wing so different um, than a traditional approach? I, I was thinking as you were talking, I was thinking about my own practice. I was thinking about physicians that I talked to or nurses that I talked to or mental health workers that I talked to or social workers that I talked mm -hmm. to. It, it's interesting because we almost are a paid expert parent mm. in a traditional role, mm. which means I know what's best for you and you just need to listen to me. And we know how well that goes over with children when we're parenting. It's just, <laughs> you know, I, I can be the most brilliant addiction specialist on the planet. And you can be talking to me about your drinking. And I can tell you why it's doing damage to you and what you need to do differently. And just because I tell that to you doesn't mean you're going to change your behavior. And then I can start to make you feel guilty because mm -hmm. you're not changing your behavior. I can say, well, don't you care about your health? Well, why are you doing this to yourself? Like, don't you know that, you know, didn't you read the brochure that I gave you on the damage it's going to cause to you? It just, it is ironic that we know that a traditional parenting approach, like when we think of a, a stereotypical parent-child relationship, that there's going to be resistance and, mm -hmm. and pushback. And but then we think for some whatever reason when we get to be adults, if we take this same expert parenting approach, it's mm -hmm. going to change behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just interesting how much we still ascribe to something that, we, that the data shows doesn't work. And common sense says that doesn't work well. If for we would, most people, for most, most of the time. For most people, most yeah. of the time. I mean, because if for, someone's really motivated, it's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. If they're motivated, then it's going to work. They're going to an expert or a professional say, "What do you think I should do?" You give them the advice. They run. They take mm -hmm. it. They they build on that. And they change their life. Fantastic. It, it, the reason why I wanted to lay that up because I think it works so well with the four processes. Because when you think of the four processes of MI, just the way we've slightly modified them, but the whole construct of the four processes is the same. The first process is that people need to feel heard and understood, which is engagement. And the, 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 what strikes fear into the hearts of professionals is, I don't have time to spend that much time <laughs> listening to the story. Like, we've got, we got things we've got to get done, and I've only got 15 minutes with them. And so there's that aspect of it. But this is why there's a method to motivational interviewing, mm -hmm. is you can listen and you can get engagement. You, you can reduce that tension or the blaming outside the self in really short periods of time. 
once you get engagement and they feel heard and understood, as soon as you feel heard and understood, you start to explain what your dilemma is. Mm -hmm. When you start to explain your dilemma, then the second of the four processes is focus, Mm -hmm. which is you get them focused. We use the construct of uh, top of the mountain or focus mountain, which is what are your values? So it's not how do we fix the problem, which is plan. Mm -hmm. It is who do you want to be when you grow up? Who do you see yourself as? Who have you always wanted to be? So once I get the resistance down or that Mm -hmm. defensiveness down, once you get that discords Mm -hmm. eliminated, you're going to see the dilemma internally. Instead of trying to fix the dilemma, which is what every brain wants to do as soon as you see the dilemma, is how do we fix it? In MI, what you do is you get them focused on who do they really want to be and what are their values. And once they're focused on that, and then you bring them back down to the ambivalence, then in the way we look at the four processes is then you go, traditionally what it's talked about is evoking, but we look at it as evoking change talk. What we look at is how do you start to work on a plan then? So you get engagement first, you get them focused second, then you start to develop a plan to get them to in alignment with who do they want to be. Mm-hmm. And then the, the fourth one is pursuing that mm-hmm. in our version of the four processes of then once they get the plan, how do you build self-efficacy, self-agency, mm-hmm. reinforce through strategic affirmations? Mm-hmm. As they're taking steps forward, how do you mm-hmm. solidify that into a sustained behavior change mm-hmm. that has legs on its own and moves way, for me, way beyond the target behavior? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Well, hopefully that gives you a sense then of what MI is and why you would want to use it, that it's usually for people that present with less motivation or you think there's less motivation versus those that are really motivated. And even if they don't present with it, if you're going to try to have a behavior change conversation, it's your job to see if there's something in there to work with. Focus on their values. Who do they want to be? Is there a discrepancy? And that can be big, deep conversations that are very philosophical, or it can be very practical conversations around how would tomorrow be better than today? And that depends on where you're at as a professional and the people you serve or the age you talk with. That's where you've taught me a lot on different age groups and different mental states, but the framework really doesn't change. I want to say MI at this point is in something like 64 different languages or something like this, and it's, it's further expanding, but it's a conversation about change of some kind focused on who does that person want to be happier and healthier. They're defining it. We're not defining it. And there's a lot of other uh, podcasts that really relate to what we're talking about here, where we could dive into the four processes more. We could talk more about what you ended at the end of um, building their self-efficacy, building their sense of agency and control, even in a situation like Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, where you feel like you have no control, but how do you re-empower them to have a sense of of locus of control. And so to do all that, we would love to hear from you around what is most intriguing of this for you. What would be helpful? We could do a whole skill building around the difference between praise and affirmations and how that leads to more uh, planning and self-efficacy and more likely a follow through. We could do something like that, or we could do something completely different, but we would love to hear from you. This is all about you. And so this is about you in particular and what you want to learn. So we don't know that unless you reach out. So we have uh, our uh, social uh, media of different kinds from, from Facebook as well as our, is it Instagram? Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> get more oriented. Um, and uh, hashtag MI guys. And uh, we would love to hear from you. And hopefully this has been valuable for you. So thank you for your time. Thanks a lot. All right. Bye. Bye-bye.